0: Today we are in part two of our series titled Nehemiah. We're exploring the book titled Nehemiah and the life of the man, Nehemiah. We're learning what uh, happened in his life and how he overcame a variety of obstacles in his life. The courage that he had, the faith that he had to accomplish all that he accomplished. But then also, how does this story impact Restoration Church and the future and the vision that God has given us? So when this story begins, Nehemiah is way out in Persia. Persia, um, he's in Persepolis, which is the uh, capital of Persia at the time, and he gets word from Jerusalem by his brother that Jerusalem is in a very sorry state. Jerusalem, the city is in, is in literal rubbles, right? The, the city wall has been torn to the ground. The temple is destroyed at this time. Uh, the city is in in shambles, but also the people are in shambles spiritually. They have fallen back and resorted back to the same habits and the same life that they once lived. Right? They've married foreign brides, they're following foreign gods, they're idol-worshiping, they're not sacrificing God appropriately, they're not living in love with one another, they're not doing the things that they should be doing, they're living the exact same way they had before the exile. And So not only are the people in anguish and in spiritual shambles but the wall is in spiritual isn't is in shambles as well and this completely broke nehemiah's heart when he heard this he collapses and he begins to weep something in him was agitated he was feeling a tension there was great concern in nehemiah's life over what he had heard and whenever we experience tension Whenever we experience concern, whether it be in our relationships or our work or our families or our communities or the general state of the world, whenever there is tension, whenever there is concern bubbling up inside of us, a question is always asked, whether implicitly or explicitly, a question is always asked, should it be this way? Should what am I feeling, should what I'm experiencing, should the way the world is, should it be this way? And if the answer is no, then a new question immediately arises. Well, then what am I going to do about it? Because tension always prompts our minds to think of a preferred future. We begin to dream about what could be. We begin to craft ideas about what could be could be about what our kids should be like and our marriage should be like and our life should be like and our world should be like. We cast a vision for our kids being hard workers when we see them being lazy. We cast a vision of enjoying our job when we struggle to get out of bed in the morning. We cast a vision of a marriage that is thriving when we feel like we're only and ever arguing with our spouse. Our brains naturally do this when there is tension within us. But just because we naturally do this does not mean that it actually answers the question, what am I going to do about it? And a lot of us just you know, feel like or, or we think like when, we, when, we, when, we, when tension arises in us, when we ask these questions, what should I do about it? And we're like, I, nothing. I don't know. What can I do about it? I can't do anything, right? I'm not at the right place. I don't have the right time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the stability. I don't have the finances. I don't have the resources. I can't do anything about the situation that is in front of me. I don't have the bandwidth to deal with it. Yeah, my heart is broken. Yeah, I feel the tension. Yeah, I feel the pain. Yes, I feel it all. But I just do not have the energy or the resources or the bandwidth to actually do anything about the situation in front of me. And so I'm just going to choke down the feelings, get back to life, get back to the grind, and I don't know, I, just, I guess I'm going to hope that somebody else does something about it. And if no one does then I guess life will just continue the way it is. And come on, life isn't that bad, and my marriage isn't that bad, and my kids aren't that bad, and the world isn't that bad. But what happens when it is? And we know this, right? We feel this. What happens when it is that bad? What happens when the vision we create of a f- preferred future nags us? You guys ever felt that before? Like, I, I just, I can't get it out of my head. Like, it, it keeps me up at night. What happens when the vision doesn't die in us, but it persists night after night, and month after month, and year after year, and we just can't shake it? What happens when it eats at us? You see, what separates vision from a dream is conviction. It's not that something could be done It's that something must be done because I can't let this keep eating me. I can't let this keep nagging me. I can't let this keep me awake at night any longer. There is a moral imperative attached to vision. Like it would actually be wrong if I didn't see this through. It would be wrong to not instruct my kids in being hardworking, generous, responsible, fun-loving, caring adults creating boundaries for them and expectations for them to be that way. It would be wrong for me to stay in this hamster's wheel of a job instead of venturing out into what God has called me to do. It would be wrong for me to turn a blind eye to the injustices I see in my community when it would just be easier to pretend they don't exist. You know, the first time I remember feeling this way was in second grade. Whenever we were put in high-stress situations in second grade, like, you know, texts or having to, to speak in public, things like that. The girl who sat next to me would have accidents. She would literally, she would pee, she would pee herself. And, and I can remember the first test of the school year when I was in second grade, and nobody had any idea that, that this happened. I can remember the very first test we took, and I was taking the test, and I was sitting there, and I was realizing that the feet below me, my, the floor below me was getting slippery and i was like what that's so odd like what's going on here and so i i looked over at this girl and i could just see how distraught and how embarrassed she was and then the kid on the other side of us we sat this the our our, our desks were all in a big u shape around around the room and uh the 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 kid the boy on the other side of her felt the same thing and you could see it and, and he looked over her and he stood up and he starts pointing his finger and he starts calling out and he starts describing what's happening and he's, and he's pointing out that this girl is having this accident in front of all these kids and, and he's pointing around and, he's, and you could see the girl just like, begins to sob and break down and she's so embarrassed and all, the, and all the clash just erupts in laughter pointing their fingers at this girl and I'm sitting there and my heart is just broken for this girl. And I sat there in the moment thinking you know my 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 heart is broken i'm feeling tension right there's concern there's an agitation rising rising up in me and i'm asking the question should it be this way should all of these kids be laughing and pointing at this girl and making fun of her in this moment believing in my heart that the answer was no casting a vision in my mind of this girl being met with compassion rather than than finger pointing and ridicule and i froze and i did nothing the teacher came over, told the class to settle down. The teacher actually asked me, I was the only person who was sitting there calm in the entire classroom. She asked me if I would help take the girl down to the nurse and get her, get her changed and get her cleaned up. And we walked down the hallway and this girl was sobbing just uncontrollably because she felt so embarrassed by the situation. And I didn't look her in the eyes in that moment and in some heroic fashion convince her that, that she was loved unconditionally and that it was going to be okay and that we all have issues. I didn't go back to the class and stand in front of them and say, how dare you? What, what if you were in that position? How would you feel? Like I didn't, I didn't stand in front of the class and, and call them to repentance and you know, start some classroom revival. I didn't do anything. But the situation nagged me. It nagged me. There was something in me all night long for day after day after day. There was nagging in my heart. Kids treating each other like crap nagged me all night. Humans being so dang selfish nagged me all night. And this situation, in a lot of ways, and this tension I felt, I saw how horrible humans can treat each other in this moment. First time I really remember feeling and thinking how horrible humans can treat each other. And I began to cast a vision of a preferred future where humans were kind and respectful and unconditionally loving. I didn't know Jesus was the fulfillment of my vision until much later in life, but I was eventually convinced that Jesus was the solution to all of that nagging in me, all that was bothering me about the condition of the world. And that tension still nags me as I look at our community and as I look at our world and I see how people treat each other and I see how people are living so far from abundant life. It still nags me and it still keeps me up at night. More on that in just a minute. When Nehemiah felt the tension regarding Jerusalem and his people, he didn't jump up immediately and run off to fix the problem. He couldn't. There was nothing he could do about the problem and the situation that he was experiencing. He was in the wrong place, doing the wrong job, working for the wrong guy, and he had no way of changing his circumstances. He was a slave to the king of Persia. He had no rights. He had no resources at his disposal. All he had was a vision of a restored people. All he had was some prayer. All he had was time. He was not free to act on the vision that he had received, but this does not mean that he was inactive. He used the time to prepare for the day when God would release him to accomplish the vision that God had given him. And so he prayed and he planned. we learn in Nehemiah 1.11, during his prayer, he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And so specifically, Nehemiah prays for an opportunity. Now, our tendencies, I think, at least my tendency is, and if maybe we're all honest, we would maybe agree with this, our tendency is to pray for A miracle. Our tendency is to pray for God to do the work all the time. Like, God, will you just change my child's will and my spouse's will and their behavior and their actions? Will you just go into their heart and change something about them? Will you change my work situation? Will you change the way the world is going? Will you just change it, God, because it's horrible and we know it, God, and you're God and you're mighty and you're powerful, and so God, change it. Parents, whether we realize it or not, we all have a vision for who, the type of person we desire and we see our children becoming. And so our prayer for them is that they would become people of character. Heavenly Father, please make this happen. Override my child's will. Override their stubbornness. Override their sassiness. God, will you just go in and change their hearts and will you just do it? Will you just make them good people? But what if instead we prayed for opportunities? God, will you give me an opportunity to build character into my child's life? Well, I guess that means I have to be a person of character. But will you just give me an opportunity to speak into my child's life? When we're sitting in that car in silence, maybe that's an opportunity for me to open my mouth and speak into my child's life. Will you give me opportunities, Father, to speak into my child's life? Opportunities to help them grow, opportunities to help them be challenged, opportunities for them to be shaped. Will you give me those opportunities? You know, a lot of us have visions for our unbelieving friends. I have a whole slew of friends um, that I, I have visions for of them coming to faith in Christ that they would know Christ, that they would be saved. And so our prayer is that God would reveal himself to them and that they would have softened hearts and so that they would come to faith, that they would be saved. But what if instead we began to pray for opportunities to speak to them about Christ? Or in addition, at least, speak to them about Christ. I guess that puts some burden of responsibility on me, doesn't it? That I actually have to open my mouth and tell them about the faith that I have and the hope that I have. You see, vision will always involve a person to see it through. Nehemiah never prayed to God that God would rebuild the wall, that God would, would, would create a faithful Israel, establish a faithful Israel. Instead, he prays for an opportunity to go and to rebuild the wall himself. Instead, he prays for opportunities to go and to speak into the life of the people of Israel himself. And this is the difference between a vision and a dream. Dreamers dream about things being different. Visionaries envision themselves being the onus of the change. Visionaries look for opportunities to do something. Nehemiah wasn't expecting God to work independently without him. He was looking for an opportunity to work alongside God. And Nehemiah probably prayed this prayer Help me succeed. Help me have favor before the presence of the king. He probably prayed that prayer every single time he went in to see the king, which was several times a day. And so, over the course of the four months that he prayed this prayer, he probably prayed it hundreds of times. He was persistent in this prayer. And time and time again, he was invited before the king, but the opportunity to discuss the state of his homeland never presented itself. And so, he kept praying and he began planning. Because vision without a plan is just an idea. A dream without a plan will always remain a dream. Remember, we're not expecting God just to do all the work. We're, we're asking for partnership in order to work alongside God and accomplishing his vision through us. And he knew that if he had an opportunity to cast his vision before the king, that he was going to need a plan of action and he would be ready to answer the questions then the king that the, the questions that the king had. And so you have a vision. Well, do you have a plan? You know, if the right opportunity came along, do you know what you would do? Right? We all have these ideas about the way that the world is broken and the things that we would like to, to be done. We have these visions of, of how our kids could be different, or our marriage could be different, or our jobs could be different, but do we have a plan? If the opportunity came along, do we have a plan? If that guy we've been praying for asks about our faith in Christ, do you guys know what you would say? Or are you just going to fumble through some, you know, weak conversation, unconvincing and that, that, that Christ is everything to you? Do you have a plan as to how to talk with people who ask about the hope that you have? If suddenly you have an opportunity to leave the job that you hate, do you, do you have a plan of action to switch careers and to do something that you'll love? Do, do you know the steps that you would take to make that transition successful? You have a vision for how your children are going to turn out. Do you have a plan as to how you are going to help build character into their lives? You probably have a vision for how your marriage will function. Well, do you have a plan as to how you're going to prioritize your spouse? Because dreaming about having a great marriage and planning about having a great marriage are two very different things. Because in most instances, my friends, opportunity, apart from preparation, is going to result in missed opportunity. And so... About four months after Nehemiah first heard of the state of Jerusalem, four months after the initial tension that birthed a vision for his people in a city, but realizing that he could do nothing in that moment but pray and plan, four months of daily appearances before the king and daily prayers for opportunity, four months of planning And preparation, he goes before the king, as he had done so many times before, and we're told at the beginning of chapter 2, I had not been sad in the presence, in his presence before, King Artaxerxes' presence before. And so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of the heart. So he recognized that his heart was broken over something. And in this moment, Nehemiah is like, bingo, that's it. This is my opportunity. He says, I was very much afraid, right? The door is open, and it's going to take a lot of courage to walk through it. After all, I'm about to ask the king to go help me rebuild the walls of the city that used to pose a military threat to this very region, right? This is a long shot. What I'm about to ask the king, I need resources. I need help. I am a slave in his kingdom. I do not have anything to my name. I need resources. I need help. I need a lot from the king. This is going to be a long shot, but I have a vision, and I've developed a plan, so here goes nothing. Nothing. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? And the king said to me, well, what is it you want? And I said to him, I don't know. I haven't thought about it. I don't have a plan of action. I'm just sad. And the king said to me, well, too bad. I was willing to help if only you had a plan. Some of you are chuckling good because you know that's not actually in the Bible, right? That's not how the story goes. But if Nehemiah in those four months just sat on his hands and dreamed about a preferred future and did not develop a plan, guess what? He would have missed a great opportunity because the king invited him to talk about what needed to happen. And so he came prepared, developed with a plan in mind. He was ready with a response. The king said to me, what is it you want? Well, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with his queen sitting beside him asked me, how long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. But just a request, that's not a plan, right? I, I Remember, the vision is to restore Jerusalem. That's going to take resources and lumber and tools and safe travels and people to help. And so I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates? This is his plan manifested in his request, so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, by the temple and for the city wall and for a residence I will occupy? And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. I mean, basically, right, Nehemiah needed to leave his post in Persia. He needed financial support from the king. He needed safe travel. He needed supplies and resources when he got there. He needed authority once there to convince the people to help him build the walls. And so he made a plan as to how to get it all. And it required immense favor from God. These were long shots, right? These were only God could accomplish this type of requests. But Nehemiah believed, even if this terminology hadn't been written down yet, that God was the God of the immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine. And he believed that God would grant him what he needed. He knew God's promises, and so he relied on God's strength. But if he would have entered the conversation without planning, he would have squandered the opportunity, because opportunity, apart from preparation, results in missed opportunity. And who knows? Maybe the walls of Jerusalem never would have been built. Maybe the the people of of Jerusalem never would have reestablished the covenant. Or maybe God would have used somebody else to fulfill his promises and use somebody else to fulfill his plan. Now, this series is about the future of restoration just as much as it is about the story of Nehemiah. And so eight years ago, we arrived in Levittown to start the renovation process of this building and and developing relationships with our community, and there was immediate tension. Remember when I was eight years old in second grade and I watched how crappy humans treat each other and how easily we hurt each other? And it breaks my heart, and I hope that it breaks your heart as well, how miserable humanity is. And I, and I, and I cast this vision, even as a little eight-year-old, of a, of a better future, of a better humanity, of a better way to live. And it nagged me And it grew inside of me, and the tension only got worse as I got older, and I went into middle school, and goodness knows how we treat each other in middle school. I went into high school, and I saw bullies and fights and all sorts of horrible things in high school, and the situation never got better, right? It only got worse as I got older. But it crafted a vision in my mind of of genuinely loving humans and caring communities and and people who are living into the, the, the best lives that God had deemed for them as He's created us, even. I recognized that the world needed restoration. I longed to see a world that was restored through Christ. And so we got here eight years ago and we began to study our community. And we were met with some very stark truths which created really true tension about our community that we are planted in here in Levittown, in this region of Lower Bucks. First, we realized very quickly that our neighbors do not care about the church. We are in the most post-Christian region of America. I don't mean the East Coast. I don't even mean Philadelphia. I mean Lower Bucks. There are 275,000 people within our reach. 52% of Lower Bucks claims to be Catholic. That doesn't mean that they actually do anything with the Catholicism, by the way. It just means that it's the association that they are aware of and that they know of. It's what they grew up on, perhaps. 0.5% claim to be evangelical, and I hate that term because it's become so political, but really all I mean in saying that is that people who rely on the grace of God to save them that we are not relying on any of our own works. We are solely relying on the grace of God through our faith to, uh, to, to to save us. Pennsylvania as a whole, by the way, is about 3% evangelical, 17% Protestant, 3% evangelical. All that is to say is that we are about one-sixth as evangelical um, as the rest of the state. We live in the most densely packed suburban area of Philadelphia, We have more people than any other suburban region, but with one-sixth the evangelical presence. In other words, Levittown and its surrounding towns is one of the least Christian areas, the least regions of the entire nation that relies on the gospel of Jesus Christ for our salvation in the entire United States. Our area is thoroughly post-Christian. This means that people are no longer interested in looking to the church for the answers to their greatest questions, it doesn't mean that the questions have stopped, right? It doesn't mean that people aren't searching for answers. It doesn't mean that, that people still don't feel guilty and feel ashamed for their behavior. It doesn't mean that they're, they're not carrying around an immense burden upon their shoulders. It doesn't mean that they grieve unendingly when, when things are hurtful and there are sorrow that happen. They're doing everything in their power, in fact, to get rid of that guilt and that shame. It doesn't mean that people are adamantly searching for meaning and purpose in life. It's just that the majority of people in our area aren't interested in finding answers to all of those questions and all those experiences in a place like this, in the local church. The reality is the church has done too much damage, the church has been too irrelevant, the church has hurt too many people, and people have sought meaning and the answers to life's biggest questions elsewhere. They're just not convinced that the church has any solutions to their problems. And the reason this is the case, specifically for our area, is because sociologists say Levittown was founded on the principle and the promise of autonomy. Levittown was the first suburban experiment propped up on the idea of the American dream of being self-made and self-governed. And now, second, third, and fourth generations of that mentality are promised. I'm sorry. Second, third, and fourth generations of that mentality and promise are still seeking out that same dream. But the American dream and autonomy naturally spits in the face of a faith system founded on grace. So we have a real challenge in front of us. But here's what I also know to be true everybody is searching for what Jesus inherently provides. Everyone is doing something to fix the problem they know they have, everyone has experienced guilt and shame, and we carry it with us trying to rid it wherever we can. We we do this through blame shifting, through running, through hiding, through concealing. We do it through drug use and alcohol use and blame shifting it away. We try to work it off by being good persons or good people. We we go to places like this and we try to be religious, hoping that's going to solve the problem. Everyone is doing something to attempt to discover meaning on this planet. Everyone is doing something to try to fix the problem that they inherently know that they have. But we still walk through life empty except for the baggage that we carry. But Jesus comes along and he says, friends, I'll take it off your shoulders. I'll, I'll free you of that. I'll forgive you of it all. And on the path of that forgiveness, I'll set you on a course to abundant life. In other words, Jesus is the answer to life's biggest questions that all of our neighbors are inherently asking. Our neighbors don't know it because most typically Jesus is packaged alongside the baggage of the church. And our neighbors aren't interested in the church. The church, in other words, as it is traditionally known, is the biggest obstacle for our neighbors to come to faith in Jesus. And that is really hard for me to say as a leader of a church. But I believe it's true. And all of this is part of the tension we are experiencing. And, and I don't, is it just me that's experiencing it? Like as you read that list of what our community is like and what our region is like, does that create tension in you as well? Does it break anybody else's heart that our our neighbors, our community is so far from Christ? So far from the life of Christ? So far from abundant life? So far from forgiveness? So far from the free gift of grace that Christ offers us? So far from everything that they are inherently searching for? But they're trying to find it in all the wrong places. Does that break anybody else's heart or is it just me? Maybe that's why I'm the leader of a church, because it breaks my heart, right? But we are the body of Christ, and so I hope that it breaks your heart as well, because all of this should create tension in us. And then, again, tension always asks the question, should it be this way? Should we be content with our community being so far from God? Should we be content with our community living broken, searching, wanting lives? I mean, if we take Jesus seriously, the answer has to be no, doesn't it? I mean, if we take Jesus seriously, if we have any compassion, any love, the answer has to be no. We cannot be content with our community being so far from God. And so then the natural question, again, is, well, what are we going to do about it? Tension always asks the question, should it be this way? And if we are adamant, believing what Jesus has said, being people full of compassion and love and generosity, the answer must be no, then what are we going to do about it? And about five years ago, after praying about our region and, and feeling this tension, five years ago, I've been wrestling with these feelings, right? These have nagged me. These have kept me up at night. This is what I think about in my free time. When I'm at the beach with my family, I'm thinking about how horrible our community is. Not how horrible, just how far our community is. That's why they don't want to come here, because I call them horrible all the time, right? No, like, this is, it, it nags me. It plagues me, right? This is so heavy upon my heart and my mind. A vision for a space that functioned as the church functions with the same values and the essential mission began to grow in me. A a venue that would house community and bleed generosity in all it does. A, A venue and a community that was helping our community meet and know Jesus, and that would be a natural and compelling draw for every single person. But it didn't look like or function like a traditional church. Because our area has a lot of traditional churches, doesn't it? There's a lot of buildings with steeples on top of it. But our community lacks certain venues. And this vision was beginning to be birthed in me. Is there, is there a way to recontextualize the church for a community that wants nothing to do with church? I first talked about this vision during a series called Beheg's five years ago. And then a series titled Immeasurably More, and then Bridge Builders, and then A Cart and a Horse, and maybe some of you remember it. And the reason I keep bringing this up, right, is because this vision is being matured in us as a church body, and we are maturing for the vision. Remember last week, that was what Nehemiah had to do. That's why he went through this waiting and this praying and this planning phase. But ultimately, we feel that we are called to begin a coffee shop in our community that will function as a community house for those close to Jesus and those far from him a business that will bleed generosity in all it does. We've determined to call this the bridge because it illustrates our hope in bringing those far from God, close to him through community in Christ. This space will close that gap. If you don't like this logo set, maybe you prefer this logo set. We want to create a space that is designed for community, designed for conversation, designed for growing deeper in love and in Christ but there's also a dynamic expression of God's generosity. How? Well, imagine you come into the bridge and there's a sign that says something to the effect of 100% of our proceeds will be poured back into our community. Thank you for your contribution. Or something to that effect. And why would we do this? Why, why, why would a, a, a business give back 100% of all of its proceeds back into the community? Because the bridge is a coffee shop in our community for our community. Because our mission is not money. I've talked to so many church, like, you know, a a church coffee shop, this isn't nothing new. This isn't like some radical vision. Like, there's a lot of churches that have coffee shops. But I've talked to a lot of pastors who've done this, and their bottom line is still, at the end of the day, the dollars they're able to make. And our vision, my friends, is not money. Our mission is to help those who are far from Christ know him. And because they won't do so in a local church, We're going to redefine church and let the world know who Christ is without all the baggage that comes with a building like this. A lot of churches have coffee shops. This is not a church coffee shop. This is the church recontextualized for a community that wants nothing to do with the church. It won't feel churchy. It doesn't have a church name like Hebrews or (laughs) Uplifted or Faithful Blend or Holy Grounds or Jehovah Java or being redeemed, or pressed but not crushed, or the cup that overfloweth. I mean, I can go on and on and on, guys. This is... But it keeps nagging me, and it keeps me up at night. And for the last five years, we've been in a praying and a waiting and a planning phase. But COVID presented us with opportunities and a conviction that our community needs community. When we were socially distanced for so long, we realized very, very quickly, and maybe some of you did too, our community needs community, and more than that, our community needs Jesus. So this past January, several from our leadership came together to discuss where restoration is and where we're going, and we determined to focus on four strategic areas that will ultimately help us accomplish the vision First, we know that restoration in general, but certainly as we do something like this, we'll need healthier organizational systems, and so we established a team that is working towards this, and we're making great progress in this regard. Second, our space in external venues. We still plan on expanding Restoration Church. That was, the, that was one of the initial visions that we wanted to expand. We want to build an expansion onto this building, a lobby of, of sorts that would also house um, a place for our community to come and be known. Because of COVID and the unknowns that the pandemic is still presenting, the process of raising funds for this has been delayed, but it is still certainly within our future. But the space COVID provi- but, but in the space that COVID provided it also allowed us to rethink some of the things and, and to listen as to how God is calling us to, to reach our community and to reestablish the initial vision that God gave me five years ago of a coffee shop off our campus that will function like the church, but will feel nothing like. The church. Third, we feel called to develop a holistic birth-to-death discipleship pathway, which we've made tremendous progress on, but still have a long ways to go. And the bridge will, ha- will be a house for many of the discussions that these discipleship pathways creates for us. And lastly, that prayer would be a central focus to all that we do. And so I'm going to invite Kate Ford, and we're going to move into a time of worship. But while we do so, I want to give you an opportunity to respond to this. Online, you can participate too, by the way, because some of the links that I'm going to talk about in just a minute are going to be dropped into the comments. In the four corners of the room, you might see these pieces of paper. They all have these QR codes on them. If you don't have a smartphone, we can um, certainly access after the service. We can help you access um, all of these websites and all of these forms as well. In the four corners of the room, you see the, the, the four sheets of paper, each with a QR code on them, leading you to a form pertaining to one of these four areas, these four endeavors. And so while we sing, here's what I want you to do. I want you to simply pray. I want you to spend a few moments in prayer and asking God, God, how are you calling me to invest my time, my energy, my my resources? Where are you calling me to participate in the life of Restoration Church? And so begin praying. And if you're ready and when you're ready, then I encourage you to get up because we want you to take a step, right? The fact that we just didn't hand you a piece of paper with this, this is an action step, right? It's going to take some energy out of you to get up off your seat or to move to where these QR codes are. And it's an indication then that you're ready to go because we've never been a church where the staff does all the work. We've never been a church where it's just me that's doing all the work. We've always been the body of Christ functioning together to accomplish the mission that God has called us and the mission that God has put in our hands. And so all of these are action steps, but they're also commitments to prayer. One of the first things we did to assist in our healthy org culture was to develop an agile pod. I'm not going to go into the details of this. It looks weird. I get it. I'm not going to tell you what it's all about. But we didn't want a traditional, um, we didn't want a traditional org chart because it was too linear. We're, we're, we're a church of collaboration. We're a church of teams working together to accomplish things. And yes, we're developing new systems and structures around everything that we do to enhance our work and make things smoother. But one of the, thing, one of the ways that we create healthy organizational structures is by filling all of these circles with, with people. With team members. And so the, 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 the thing that you would do when you fill out the healthy organizational structure is you are saying, I'm ready to go. Put me in coach. I'm ready to go, right? Like I'm ready to get onto a team. I'm ready to serve. I want to be part of where restoration is going. And so get me involved onto a team. And so if you were to scan that code, it would send you to a form that would s- essentially say, here are the various teams. Here's what I want to be on. Give me the information I need to get me plugged in on various teams. If you go to fill out the space form, what you're committed uh, to, the, the additional space form, the bridge form, we are committed to um, is you're simply buying into the vision. If you were to, to go and to fill out the, this, the sign that says bridge on it, you're simply buying into the vision. And then you want to do all that you can to help us see it through. Maybe you've put a business plan together in the past. We're currently working on that right now, but maybe you have some expertise in that regard. Maybe you have skills to help make physical space a reality or marketing expertise, or maybe you just love coffee and you want to make it a success. You want to see that it's a success. Or maybe you're just super excited about this and you want to invest financially in it, or, or maybe you can't invest financially in it now, but you have somebody, you know somebody, you have connections to people who might love to sit down and hear this vision. Then let us know who those are, because we're going to be going in front of a lot of investors to raise the money that we're going to need in order to put this vision out there. And to be completely transparent, again, this is in addition to the expansion of the building at a capital campaign that will begin hopefully in early 2022. And some of you are thinking, Ross, how could we ever do both? You want to expand the building, which is going to be a lot of money to do that, and you also want to build a coffee shop? How are we ever going to do both? And it it prompts me to ask the question what could Nehemiah do as a slave? Without resources in a foreign land, what could he possibly do to see his vision accomplished? All he could do, my friends, was pray, plan. He could ask those with the resources to help him, and then he could trust. And the gracious hand of our God was upon him, and his request was granted. If you were to go fill out the discipleship code, you're indicating your desire to go through our primary growth engine, which begins with starting point, which traverses through the way and then into the practice. All of these are going to be offered in the fall, but they all do rely on the one prior to it. So if you've never been through any of these, start with starting point. Let us know. These are all eight-week courses that are going to help you become like Christ, to live and to love like Christ. And lastly, prayer. If you fill out the prayer code, you are telling us that you are standing in the gap for restoration that you are committed to seeking the favor of God and the gracious hand of God to be upon a restoration church and all that we are hoping to accomplish because we believe it's a vision granted by God. You are saying, I want information about when we're gathering corporately to pray. I want to gather with you. I want information on all of that. And so it's really a commitment to be in prayer for all that God has doing us. And we would love to know who's that so that we can be praying for you guys as well. And all of these, we will be in touch in the coming weeks. This is not the last time you're going to see these. We will talk about this more as we continue the process and the story of Nehemiah. So I would encourage you to take a moment to pray. And if you feel prompted to come and to sign up for one or all four of them, then again, they're all over the, they're all over the place, four, four places in the corners. Take some time to do this while we continue our time through worship and song.